Let's go there this morning. This is a familiar passage. And we will dig into it and see what the Lord expects out of us today because of what he did in Saul's life. So if you're able, would you stand as I read from chapter 9 of the book of Acts? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to your word. Give us understanding, Lord, how we shall live because of what you have done in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, now the way was what Christianity was called in, the first, in this portion of the first century, belonging to any of the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, Judas, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your servants in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confiding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. 
But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now there are two parts to the conversion of Saul, to the meaning of the conversion of Saul. One, obviously, is that this enemy of the church meets Jesus Christ face to face in the middle of this road, and he is forever changed. The second is the application of that change, the application of that change. Then this is the story, really, of everyone who has been converted to Jesus Christ. When we talk about conversion, we are talking about salvation coming upon someone's heart. They are converted from an enemy of God to a child of God. Their heart is full of sin. Suddenly that sin is forgiven. They are, the big term for it is justified. Justification happens in an instant in their life. It is a one-time event and they are forever changed. And then from then on they work the process of sanctification, growing in that application of the grace of Christ and applying it in their lives. Now some are changed just like Saul in an instant. Wham! And they are forever different. And some of us have had that type of experience when we weren't even pursuing God, when we weren't even thinking about Him, and all of a sudden He comes upon us. We're sitting in church thinking about something else. We're sitting in a meeting. We go out to lunch with someone and they share the things of Christ with us and we were not even concerned about godly things and all of a sudden it is as if the scales fell from our eyes as they did from Saul's and we suddenly see our need for forgiveness and that forgiveness comes only in Christ. Others, as we talked about last week, come to Christ in the sense of uh, the the French uh, hymnist described it as a gentle kiss from a mother awakening you from sleep. Over a period of time, you come to this conclusion that yes, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. It is true. These things are real and you are convinced and your life is different. Okay. Now you'll notice that everything includes and your life is different. Because once you become a believer, you are never the same. And if you can trace your your salvation to an event, and your life looks like it did before you became a Christian, and 20 years later it just looks the same, but you profess to be a Christian, you've got a problem. We are to grow in holiness. We are to grow in our conformity to the things of Christ. If Christ has worked in your life, you will be different. That's just what Scripture teaches us. And that is what Paul Harvey calls what? The rest of the story. We've got conversion here with Saul, and then we've got a changed life. There are three easy points to this passage. Any good pastor has three points in his pocket. 
all day, okay? Three points, and, and uh, of course, one point has a whole mess of subpoints, so I wouldn't want to make it that easy for you. No one is beyond salvation. No one is beyond salvation. Salvation is the work of God accomplished by Christ and communicated to us through the Holy Spirit by the proclamation of the gospel by men and women. God uses us to proclaim His truth that will, and people will believe. And third, if you are saved, you will live differently. No ifs, ands, or buts. You will. So the first one, no one is beyond salvation. Look at us. Okay? Now part of us, we have to ask the question, would God save you? Okay? Are you worth saving? Well, let me ask me. Is, am I worth saving? No, there's nothing intrinsic within me that would make me worth being saved. It is simply God's love. It is simply His plan and the working out of His grace. Now, we might look at other people and go, you know, it'll take a miracle. And I don't even think God's got it to save them. Okay, I've gone places and, and we jokingly will say, oh, there's a lot of the non-elect here tonight. Okay, when, now that's a, it's a bad reform joke. Okay, but you get the impression that some people just seem to be so full of sin and so full of evil that there's no hope for them. Uh, except for that guy named Saul, who was the great persecutor of the church. Now, now remember what it says here right at the end of the passage. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. How did they enjoy peace? Because Saul had become a believer. So the entire church was being persecuted by Saul. He was the cheerleader. I mean, if you're going to lead, you have to be out front. He was out front. He was going and pursuing it. The great type A personality. He was not sitting back. Man, he was making it happen. There were believers out there that he had to get. And, and he didn't care whether they were men or women. He was getting them and dragging them off to Jerusalem. And suddenly he becomes a believer. And what happens? The entire church enjoys peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. There was so much evil in that sense in this one person, Saul, and God changed him forever. And, and you have to understand, there were people who didn't believe it. And, and maybe you have seen people that, that you thought, you know, 10 years ago, I saw you and I didn't think you, there was any hope for you. And suddenly you see him in church one day. I remember being somewhere and I was talking about somebody who was an elder at, at our church in, in, in Wilmington. And this person looked at me and said, you've got to be kidding me. They're an elder in your church? And I said, yeah, they are. I said, when was the last time you saw them? Oh, it must have been 10 years ago, but, but I never thought. Well, of course you never thought. Because you don't understand the power of God to change the heart. The power of God to completely cleanse somebody of sin. To turn them from this way to that way. And that's what has happened to Saul. Now, there are some problems here with Saul. And, and our human minds have these, have these problems. It, to equate it with something today uh, would be like the Ayatollah Khomeini coming to Christ and leading a great evangelistic outreach in Iran. That is the extent of the change 
that has happened in Saul's life. Here, the great enemy of the church is suddenly the evangelist to those people who he was leading against the church. He is to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to his own people. Now, no one around him knew the things of the gospel except those people who were persecuting him. It's not as if he was like Philip, sitting there reading a scroll about Isaiah, from Isaiah, and, and, and reading the things about the suffering servant and having his heart prepared. There was none of that going on. His focus was evil. His focus was on the destruction of the body of Christ. Now, we've seen this before, and we've talked about it before. Like, remember when uh, um, uh, this is, this is the, the power of God to act at a moment when we think it is completely lost. You have Moses, who is saved right at the moment where the Pharaoh declares all the baby boys should be killed, and he is raised in Pharaoh's own house. You see Jonah, the reluctant prophet. He wants to go this way, and God says, no, you've got to go this way. You know the whole story. He gets to Nineveh. These are not God's chosen people. These are Gentiles. He can hardly, you know, seven-word sermon. I mean, let's be serious. Who preaches a seven-word sermon and expects any results? It's got to be at least an hour, right? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Maybe I should reduce, reduce seven words. And what happens to the entire city? They're forever changed. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the power of God to change a life when we think they are beyond salvation, yet God says, no, they're not beyond salvation. No one is. And perhaps you have been praying for somebody for years and for years, and you're not seeing any change in their life. They're not beyond the power of God's salvation. They are not. Saul had such an intense hatred for the church, such an intense hatred for the things of Christ, that his desire was to inflict pain upon anyone who believed. Now, we first met him as he held the cloaks for those who were stoning Stephen. We see that he has gotten a special permission, a special writ from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus to round up some more believers, men and women. He doesn't care. He is the equal opportunity persecutor. He doesn't care who you are. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a pernicious threat to the things of Judaism. That is his view. And he will have you punished. He will have you punished. Now, none of us would really want Saul sitting next to us in the pew today. None of us would be comfortable if it was Saul sitting here. But we know some of us were like that. Some of us hated God for whatever reason. Injustice in our lives. Misfocused anger that was directed towards him. Or a misunderstanding within our lives and we began to blame God and hold this grudge against Him. We were angry. Maybe we hated God and we hated everything associated with it. But yet He has brought us to that point where the things of Christ were made clear to us and our lives were forever changed. Saul had no interest in spiritual things. It had to be the work of Christ. There were no people demonstrating these things to him. No people coming up to him and inviting him to lunch and and, and sharing the the four spiritual laws with him or or anything like that. Now, when I worked in Youth for Christ, we had the pizza talk. 
Okay, and you would invite some teenagers out. At that time, it was Pizza Hut, and you'd sit in the booth, and you would have your pizza pan and your plate and your fork and your spoon, and you were able to demonstrate the things of Christ. That the only way you could get the pizza from the pan to the plate is by the work of God. So you got to, you know, it was all that. None of that was going on in the life of Saul. No one shared anything about Christ. All he knew was this was a fraud. Nobody rises from the dead. Nobody comes back. I saw him. I've heard about it. He is done and he is gone. And God says, Saul, you belong to me. You are not beyond my grace. And I have a plan for you that you do not understand yet. Saul's heart, as vile and as evil as it was, was ripe for the picking Because it was God's grace. While you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. Saul could never have gotten himself clean enough for God. None of us could have. It was God's work that came upon him. Now, what an encouragement this is. What an encouragement. Perhaps you have written some people off. Maybe you've seen people in your family just continually at Thanksgiving. You get a chance to talk and they reject it and they're angry. Maybe people at your work. Uh, who knows where it is? And there are people that you have thinking, you've thought, uh, just, their ears are closed. They just will never hear the things of Christ. Saul heard the things of Christ. His life was forever changed. The most unlikely candidate at that time was Saul. You know his name now, Paul. How is this possible? Point number two, it is possible because salvation is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. It is accomplished by Christ on the cross and His sacrifice. It is communicated to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our eyes are opened, and that is made possible when someone comes and proclaims the things of Christ to us. Now, it used to be what were known as hyper-Calvinists in, in, uh, back in the 1700s, and even in the 1800s, they felt that you don't have to do evangelism. God will save them when He is ready. It is His work, and when God is ready to save them, He will be saved, or she will be saved. You don't have to share the gospel with, with anybody. See, that kind of runs counter to the words of Jesus. It says, you know, go and make disciples. You must take it. How will they know unless they hear it? Okay? It is our job as those whose lives have been changed to present the gospel and to do it in a way that is truthful and uncompromising because the scripture just, this is it. Okay? There, there's no other way to Christ. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to God than through Jesus Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life. And, and there are other ways to get their Heavenly Father if you don't like that one. Uh, no, no, I, I, I think it says and, and the, the only way is Jesus Christ. It is very clear. It is exclusive, and that makes some people crazy because they don't like it. They think, oh, Randy, well, you've got the truth. You're just, you know, you're, you're just closed-minded. Don't blame it on me. This is the way God has chosen to do it, okay? We present that in a way that is compassionate and full of mercy and grace, but yet clings to what is true. This is our job. To present the gospel. If you're in uh, Acts, turn over to Acts 22. And here in chapter 22, 
His name's Paul now. Paul is describing what has gone on in his conversion. And he is giving a defense of his faith, so to speak. And he writes uh, chapter 22, verse 6. And it came about that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Now, just as, as an aside, it's noon in the Middle East. If anybody of you have taken a trip to Israel, or perhaps you were stationed in or served in, in one of the Middle Eastern countries in the military or as a contractor or something, if you walk out at noontime, what is it like? You just want to melt, and the sun is so bright The light from heaven is brighter than the noonday sun here. Verse 7, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who is Saul persecuting? Believers. Believers are the body of Christ. Okay. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me, this is Paul saying, beheld the light to be sure but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. They knew there was a voice, but they didn't understand it. Jesus was speaking to Saul. Now, some of us understand this because some of us were were saved in the midst of a group that didn't understand what was going on. Some of us came to Christ in the midst of a large body, and maybe we were the only one. Or maybe we were in the midst, uh, you know, I can remember I was in the midst of a a row of of other teenagers and it was like God was speaking to me and I looked around and the rest of them didn't know what was going on. They didn't hear the voice. They didn't know salvation at that moment. This is what is happening. Those guys who are with Saul, they hear a voice but they can't understand it. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And he said, arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. You'll notice that God does not woo Saul. He does not invite Saul. He does not attempt to make a good argument for Saul that this is the right way to to do it, the right way to believe and the right way to find God. He says, you are mine, and Saul was different. And he says, now I'm going to tell you what you have to do. I'm going to tell you how much you're going to have to suffer. And what did Saul say? Oh, no. Isn't there something easier I could do? There must be a different thing. You must be talking to somebody else. No. God said, Saul, you're mine. And this is what you're going to do. He was saved by God. He could not save himself. Salvation is the work of God. Now, to say the least, this is a watershed moment in Saul's life. Okay? A watershed moment. We have seen in the past couple pages... Philip and now Saul, two individuals who come to Christ. These are the first two individual conversions. One, like that gentle kiss from a mother, they wake up. He's searching for the answers, and he reads something from Scripture. Someone shares with him, his life is forever changed. And then you have Saul. Persecuting one moment, bam! A believer the next. No in-between time. No in-between time. Neither conversion story is meant to be the exclusive model for how people come to Christ. But it just basically gives us the ends and says there's something that goes on all in between. That's the scale. You come to Christ somewhere in between here. 
So with this sudden astonishment, Saul is forever changed. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 says, It pleased the Lord to reveal His Son in me. This is Paul talking. He revealed His Son in me, not to me, but in me. There was something internal that has taken place in Saul's life. He hears an external thing. It happens, the change, internally. So everything about Saul's conversion came from God. If you would have asked Saul prior to his conversion, he would have told you that he was already righteous before the Lord. I mean, what was Saul's background? What was his vita? I mean, he was circumcised on the eighth day. The nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, Philippians chapter 3. The Lord did not appear to Saul and plead with him to believe. The Lord did not appear to Saul and say, won't you trust me? He said, you're mine. For all eternity, and Saul was different for all eternity. The Lord knocked him to the ground. He overpowered him. He struck him blind. And then Jesus gave him very direct orders on what to do. And you can imagine if you're Ananias, you're in Damascus, you're going about, and you hear about this guy, Saul, way off in the the distance, and the fact that, well, he might be coming here, but I'm going to lay low until he's out of town. And the Lord reveals to you, I want you to go and restore his sight. And you said, me? Are you sure, Lord? You know anything about Saul? And the Lord's saying, I know exactly what Saul is like because I have just made him my own. And Ananias is obedient and he goes. God did not choose Saul because he saw something of value in him. Saul had not done anything to make him worthy of God's grace. God did not look down through time and say, I can see that somewhere down the road Saul will be mine, so I'm going to choose him, and then he'll come to that conclusion. No, he said, you are mine, and on this day you will know that, and you will forever be changed. The Bible is clear. Salvation depended upon us. No one would be saved, because Romans says no one seeks after God. No one does. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans chapter 8. God can take a man breathing out murderous threats, the greatest enemy to the church, the enemy of faith, and change his heart from an intense hatred to a submission to his will. Not only was Saul saved, but he was called to apply that salvation. And he did so almost immediately. That's the third point. If you are saved, you will live differently. You will. And it's easy to see the difference in Saul's life. Someone who's been an alcoholic, who's been living on the street, wanders in someday, hears the gospel, their life has changed like Saul in that moment, and they're completely different. And we go, wow, look at the power of God. Okay? Their life is completely different. You've been raised in a Christian home. You come to faith in that gentle fashion. Now, how will your life be different? Well, I was always a good person. Well, yeah, but how does the Lord call you to live now? Look what you have been blessed with. Look at the foundation that has been laid in your life. What does He expect from you now? What does He expect from you now? John gives us, and 1 John gives us a number of tests to determine if a person is truly saved. The only way we know is Jesus knows. Because he does the saving. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. It is not our job to go around and try to root out those people who are fake believers. As if we could see. I remember I was on a, a 
a trip to Russia and there was a woman who was Russian Orthodox and she said that whenever the priest held up the cup at the communion table and looked through his arms, he could tell who was a believer and who wasn't. The Lord revealed that to him. <sighs> Great. <laughs> I have, that doesn't do that to me. Okay. The Lord knows. Our job is to bear fruit okay, and to encourage one another to do this. So here are just some, some things that I've gathered from this passage and a couple others that show some of the proofs of a changed life in the application of it. First, a recognition of sin. A recognition of sin. If you have never understood that you were a sinner, then, then how do you understand salvation? What do you need saving from if you don't understand sin? Saul understood his sin. The Lord said, why are you persecuting me? The Lord wanted to con- Saul to consider what he was doing. You'll notice it's in the question. The Lord uses questions on a regular basis. From Genesis on, he calls us into question. Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit? God knows those answers. What is he doing? He wants it to be raised right here in front of him. Same type of thing here with Saul. Why are you persecuting me? This sudden realization that it is Christ that I have been persecuting. It is Christ I have been attempting to destroy. Not just these people. Saul thought that he was zealous for the Lord, but in reality he was persecuting the Lord. With this, he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Now, it doesn't give us an explanation as to why this happens. Look at verse 9 in chapter 9. He was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank for three days. Now, there's probably a portion of a day when he got there is counted as a day in, in New Testament times. Why? Was he sick? Was he unable to? I think he was mourning. He was fasting and mourning over his sin at this period. We see in in the conversion of Nineveh, what happens? They all put on sackcloth, sit in ashes. The king makes the animals put on sackcloth. They mourn for their sin. This is what Saul's doing. He understands that he is a sinner. Some may be deeply convicted of their sin, and that right at the moment of salvation. Others may experience it in the years to follow their conversion. Maybe a coming to grips with your sin as you look back and understand it. But there is no such thing as a Christian who lacks a growing sense of their own sinfulness. If you do not understand your sinfulness and what you have been forgiven for, you better do a little self-examination. You better hold up the word and says, that says, this is the life that God calls us to. Is my life like that? What have I been forgiven for? What has God extended his grace and mercy to cleanse me of? Charles Spurgeon said, today we have so many built up who were never pulled down, so many filled who were never emptied, so many exalted who were never humbled that I the more earnestly remind you that the Holy Ghost must convince of sin or we cannot be saved. If you do not understand sin, why in the world do you need to be saved? Saul understood his sin. Number two, a recognition of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
He says, Lord, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you have been persecuting. Saul instantly realized that Jesus was alive. All that talk about resurrection, sure enough, it was true. Okay, I have seen Jesus. I have met him face to face. He is alive. So he says, get up. Let's continue to read a little bit. Where am I? Verse 18. Ananias comes in. He lays hands on him. And the first thing he does, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. And he hadn't eaten for three days or nights. So what did he do? He got baptized. He doesn't eat first. He gets baptized first. The the scales have been removed. His eyes can see. He is no longer blinded by his sin. His eyes have been opened to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So what does he want to do? Baptize me. I don't care how long I haven't eaten. Let's get baptized. There was a real change in Saul's life. It was a recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Only after that did he eat. Only after that. See, everyone who is truly converted recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ in their lives. Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. How does your life reflect the lordship of Jesus Christ? I know there's a battle of sin that remains in our hearts. He calls us to fight against that. He gives us the authority and the power to fight against that. Number three, a recognition that now you can see. Remember, the darkness hates the light. Light has been thrust into Saul's life. Now he can see the scales are gone. What was formerly anathema to Paul to Saul, now he loves. What he formerly detested, now he devotes his life to. What he formerly wanted to kill, now he'd be willing to give his life for. He was blind, but now he can see. Number four recognition that prayer is now part of your life chapter 9 verse 11 and the lord said to him arise and go to the street called straight and require at the house of judas for a man from tarsus named saul for behold he is praying now saul being a good pharisee was used to praying and he probably had wrote prayers and he prayed twice a day at certain times of the day and he prayed certain prayers and he was sure the lord was pleased with that now he is really praying for the first time His heart has been changed, and he goes right to the throne of grace through the power of Jesus Christ. Saul is now praying like he has never prayed before. Number five, a recognition for the need for fellowship. If you're a believer, you can't stay by yourself. You can't go off and say, well, yeah, I've got my own thing going here, and I'm good. No, you're not. If you've got your own thing going, you're in trouble. Because it won't last. You need the fellowship, the community, the, the fellowship of the saints, that chance to be together, to be encouraged, to hear the word, to be in the body to worship our Heavenly Father. And that's what Saul does. He goes and he is in the midst. And then he goes off to Jerusalem. as in, in the midst. And it's not until after this time that the Lord says, Now come, I'm going to take you down to the desert. And for a couple years, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. And then you're going to be my instrument. Number six, a recognition of the Holy Spirit. Ananias tells Saul that the Lord has sent him not only so that Saul could regain his sight, but that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now at the moment of 
conversion, every believer receives the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit comes upon us in a powerful way, in an additional fashion for a particular work. Saul had a particular work to do, and he needed the power of the Spirit to accomplish it. Never give up praying. Never think that someone is beyond salvation. Never doubt the power of God to change someone's life. And never forget that it is the power of God that changes someone's life. It's not our good sense. It's not our innate knowledge of what is right and wrong. It is God who comes upon you and claims you as his own and breathes life into you and you are forever changed by the work of his son. So each of us has to examine our own hearts. Am I converted? And does my life bear the marks of that conversion? Let's pray. Lord, the challenge is before us, and it's very clear. Your grace is more than sufficient to overcome any obstacle. While we are in the midst of our sin, Christ came and gave his life for us. He is the one that cleans us up. He is the one who forgives us. He is the one who washes us. His blood cleanses us and releases us from the bonds of our sin. No one is beyond your grace. Lord, remind us to pray in that sense and to pray in that fashion and to act in that fashion believing that when we share the gospel with those, they will believe. Lord, remind us that it is your work, and once that work is done in our lives, we are called to be different. We are called to apply this salvation in every aspect of our lives. We can't compartmentalize anything. It is all or nothing. Your grace seeps through into every aspect of our lives. Help us see this and live this out and live it out boldly, Lord without fear of what the world has. Let let our only fear be a holy fear of you. Let our lives reflect the work that you have done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.